So today's question title is Real Evidence. Corrupted, incomplete, full of fairy tales. Is the Bible trustworthy? Um, so yeah, if we could just uh, give Christy a round of applause as she comes up to give the talk. That's all right. Thank you very much. Such a lovely, lovely warm welcome. Um, welcome to this afternoon. We're going to be looking at this precise question. Now, I wonder what comes into your mind you know, when you hear the word Bible. Uh, it could be something like this, a short clip we're just going to watch now. The Bible, as we know it, was finally presided over by one man, the pagan emperor Constantine. I thought Constantine was a Christian. Oh, hardly. No, he was a lifelong pagan who was baptized on his deathbed. Constantine was Rome's supreme holy man. From time immemorial, his people had worshipped a balance between nature's male deities and the goddess, or sacred feminine. But a growing religious turmoil was gripping Rome. Three centuries earlier, a young Jew named Jesus had come along, preaching love and a single God. Centuries after his crucifixion, Christ's followers had grown exponentially, and had started a religious war against the pagans. But we can at least agree that the conflict grew to such proportions that it threatened to tear Rome in two. So Constantine may have been a uh, lifelong pagan, but he was also a pragmatist. And in 325 Anno Domini, he decided to unify Rome under a single religion, Christianity. Christianity was on the rise. Did you want his empire torn apart? And to strengthen this new Christian tradition, Constantine held a famous ecumenical gathering known as the Council of Nicaea. And at this council, the many sects of Christianity debated and uh, voted on well, uh, everything from the acceptance and rejection of specific gospels to the date for Easter to the ministry of the sacrament and, of course, Mortality of Jesus. I don't follow. Masha, until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by many of his followers as a mighty prophet, as a great and powerful man, but a man, nevertheless. A mortal man. Some Christians held that Jesus was mortal, some Christians believed. He was divine. Not the son of God? Not even his nephew twice removed. Not the son of God? Not even his nephew twice removed. You know, corrupted, incomplete, full of fairy stories. Is the Bible actually trustworthy? Because when we hear the word Bible, these are often the words and ideas and concepts that come into our mind for many of us, you know, aren't they? You know, the, the Bible has been tampered with. They were compiled out of convenience rather than desire for truth. And the content is so unbelievable. Why would anyone actually take it seriously? You know, other than for perhaps just a little bit of moral guidance every now and again. Now, we're going to think about some of these objections today, but what happens at the crux of it is that many people remain drawn to the figure of Jesus. Now, describing the life of Jesus Christ as recorded in the Bible, writer H.G. Wells said this. He said, I'm an historian. I'm not a believer, but this preacher from Galilee is irresistibly the center of history. And again, Alvin J. Schmidt, a former professor of sociology in the US, he wrote a book titled, How Christianity Changed the World. And in it, he said this, 
No other religion, philosophy, teaching, nation, movement, whatever, has so changed the world for the better as Christianity has done. Its shortcomings, clearly conceded by this author, are nevertheless heavily outweighed by its benefits to all mankind. Now, he describes how the Bible's teaching has been the motivation for many of those at the forefront of shaping and developing the sanctity of human life, hospitals and healthcare, education, science, liberty and justice, the abolishment of slavery, literature and art. You know, and I think it's surprising that, that people don't show any sort of interest in the Bible, given how much it has and continues to shape and influence our culture, particularly in the Western world. But the problem with the Bible um, is that it claims to be far more than just a manual for life, doesn't it? You know, the Bible claims that it gives us knowledge about who we are, you know, why we are here, and the existence of a creator. You know, it claims that it's a revelation of God. And that's why Christians love reading it. We want to get to know what God is like and what humanity is like and how we are to relate. And that is a huge claim, isn't it? You know, a claim that's going to need some serious backing up. And herein, I think, lies the problem for the Christian. Now, how do we know that what the Bible is, is what it is and does? And the answer to that is, you know, well, because Jesus himself, the one who claimed to be God, says that's what it is and does. How do we know that? Because the Bible tells us. You know, Q sniggers at Christian stupidity uh, at believing such a ridiculous circular argument. And the thing is, you know, how do any of us know, know what we know? You know, it's actually not just Christians who rely on circular arguments. So let me just throw some isms at you just for a moment. Um, rationalism argues that our reason is the source of our knowledge. How do we know that? Well, because we've reasoned our way to that conclusion. Now, idealism argues that knowledge is innate within us. How do we know that? Because it's innate within us. You know, empiricism argues that knowledge is based on our experience. How do we know that? Because our experience tells us that. Are you seeing the point here? All of our appeals to any source of knowledge are, to some extent, self-authenticating. We use it to back up the claim. But the question is, which, if any, is actually right? Now, as I've already said, Christianity's claim that the Bible is the ultimate source of knowledge by which other sources must be judged is based on the fact that Jesus Christ was God in human form. And he authenticated the Bible in God's revelation of himself. And that means uh, by which we might know God. But can we actually trust the accounts of Jesus' life and death? Is the Bible trustworthy? Well, let's think about some objections that people uh, may make in arguing that uh, we can't trust the Bible as a true account of Jesus' life. And we're going to focus primarily on the New Testament in particular, given that's where the details of Jesus' life actually are. So the first objection is the Bible isn't historically credible. Now, a document's historical reliability can be ascertained by asking the following four questions. And they'll come up. So first question is, how long after events happened were the documents written? The smaller the gap, the more likely the eyewitnesses would point out inaccuracies or fraudulent claims. Secondly, how long is there between the original documents and the oldest surviving manuscripts? Now, again, the smaller the gap, the less time there is for the documents to be changed. Third question, how many copies are there and are they all the same? If they are all different, then how do we know which version is actually right? And fourthly, do other sources reference the events or the document? 
So let's just see how the New Testament does uh, with regard to those tests. Well, sorry, you probably can't see that very well, but what we can see from this table is that the New Testament passes the first three of those tests with flying colors, blowing other ancient manuscripts out of the water in terms of reliability. So you know, if you see there, we've got, um, let's look at Plato. That was written in 380 BC. The earliest copy is around 900 AD, and that's around 1,300 years between the two. And how many copies of that? We have seven and there aren't enough copies to actually reconstruct the, um, the original. But if we look at the Gospels, for example, the New Testament, there's only a gap about 100 years max, and we can reconstruct it to 99.5% reliability. Um, or as Bruce uh, Metzger, a professor of the New Testament Greek, puts it, he wrote, the quantity of New Testament material is almost embarrassing in comparison with other works in antiquity. Without doubt, if you go to any his history department, they would say this is the most reliable document we have in antiquity. And it's widely agreed that nearly all of the New Testament was written between 20 and 60 years after the events. And a large amount of it was written by 65 AD, and that's only 30 years or so after the death of Jesus. Um, the John Rylands University Library in Manchester, um, there is a fragment of John's Gospel and that is dated around 125 AD. And that means there's only a gap of about 30 years um, from when it was written. By the middle of the fourth century, we have two copies. Um, the complete New Testament is, and that is the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanus, which contain most of the Bible. And these are also not complete, but then there are large chunks of the New Testament dated to within 100 to 180 years of the original. In total, there are over 5,000 fragments of the Greek New Testament that have been found in different places and from different times. And more than that, there are 24,000 pieces of ancient manuscripts in a number of languages, so to 99.5% of which are exactly the same. There are, as you'd expect, tiny differences, but none of them have any impact on the message of the New Testament. And all of them are footnotes, and they're readily available to read um, in most versions of the Bible today. Uh, Sir Frederick G. Kenyon, he's the former director and principal librarian uh, to the British Museum, said this about the New Testament. Uh, he wrote, the interval then between the dates of the original composition and the earliest existing evidence becomes so small as to be in fact negligible. And the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written now has been removed. Then there are also other extra biblical sources that either describe something about Jesus or his followers that fit with the Bible accounts of Jesus' life from people like Tacitus, you know, Pliny the Younger, Julius Africanus. He quotes Thallus writing in AD 52 later on in AD 221. We've got Suetonius. Also, we have Josephus, for example. He wrote prolifically, and it's in the pages of his books, um, The History of the Jewish War and Antiquities of the Jewish People, that we come across various references to biblical characters, places, and events. You know, he mentions figures from the New Testament, Herod's Pilate, Felix, Festus, the procurators of Judea, the high priestly families of Annas, Caiaphas, Ananias. All these people are referred to by Josephus. And he also mentions Judas, the Galilean, who led an uprising. And at another point, Jesus, James, the brother of the so-called Christ. And he also, um, the events mentioned by the New Testament, the famine in the days of Claudius. And he also writes about the crucifixion of Jesus too. This is just, I just think this is fascinating. So 
he, that, he goes on to write this. He writes, And there arose um, about this time Jesus, a wise man, if indeed we should call him a man, for he was a doer of marvellous deeds, a teacher of men, who received the truth with pleasure. He led away many Jews and also many of the Greeks. This man was the Christ. And when Pilate had condemned him to the cross on his impeachment by the chief men among us, those who had loved him at first did not cease, for he appeared to them on the third day alive again, the divine prophets having spoken these and thousands of other wonderful things about him. And even now the tribe of Christians, so named after him, has not yet died out. Now this passage um, needs to be handled with care, but it's such a useful historical document which mentions the bare facts um, of Christian belief about Jesus, the historical person. And as such, it really deserves our attention. Um, to sum up, as um, F.F. Bruce, he's a former head of biblical history and literature department at this very university, said this. He said, there is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. That's the first objection. Second objection, you know, aren't the authors biased? Can we trust the Bible to be true when it has been written by Christians? Well, my response would, to that would be to, to ask, what did the New Testament writers have to gain from writing anything that wasn't true? You know, most of the New Testament authors were persecuted or killed because they were writing or, or teaching what they did. You know, people are willing to die for something they believe in, but would they be willing to die for something they had made up? You know, their writing is honest about their failings and it lacks collusion. You know, if they'd got together to make up the stories in order to form a religion for power or wealth, then I think they would have done a much better job and changed the content considerably. Okay, third objection. The Bible is full of contradictions. So the, the authors may not have made it up. There may be extra biblical testimony referencing the events of the crucifixion and resurrection, but surely the Bible is just full of too many internal contradictions to be trustworthy. You know, it's funny that the New Testament was perfectly coherent, if, it, if the New Testament was perfectly coherent, people would dismiss it as unreliable because it appears too staged. But if there are any discrepancies between the writers, then it's also dismissed as unreliable. And I think most of the so-called contradictions can be explained very easily by the very natural way that different people record uh, the same events accurately, but from different perspectives. You know, you and I could go away and we could write about uh, this lunchtime event and we could both write true things, but we'd record it differently. And we'd also highlight different things depending on what we wanted to say. And that's why the gospel writers record different events and even emphasize different things Jesus said at those events. You know, rather than taking away from the reliability of the scriptures, it actually adds to their credibility. You know, if you think about a group of people who are taken in for questioning by the police after, uh, in the event of a crime, it would be highly suspicious if they all then recounted word for word the exact account, wouldn't it? The presence of perspectival details doesn't diminish the trustworthiness of the gospel writers, but adds to it. It doesn't diminish reliability. It enhances credibility. However, you know, then the objection does then spool out um, into asking, like Dan Brown, you know, hasn't the evidence been tampered with by different copyists? You know, some people have an image in their minds of many generations of scribes reproducing the biblical manuscripts for distribution, and each generation adding its own changes, so that what we have now bears very little resemblance to the original and cannot be trusted. However, the reality is, is that the textual variants that do exist are mostly single letters 
or grammatical differences. Now, our modern translations are extremely forthcoming at mentioning these minor differences. They aren't hidden away, but clearly noted and referenced, as I mentioned earlier. So when we bear in mind that we are talking about large numbers of ancient hand-copied manuscripts, the Bible we have today is astoundingly free from questions. Uh, the scholar Norman Geisler said this, that only about one-eighth of all the variants had any weight, as most of them are merely mechanical matters such as spelling or style. Of the whole, then, only about one-sixtieth rise above trivialities or can in any sense be called substantial variations. And again, these are noted in Bibles. And then perhaps, you know, you may be thinking, as we saw from the, the clip earlier, haven't the books just been added and taken away at convenience? Now, just briefly, what's important to remember is that the authority of the Bible wasn't dependent upon councils of men choosing its books. Instead, what it did was it officially recognized what was already regarded as scriptural. The canon was widely accepted within the church as authoritative and scriptural, but due to attacks on the integrity of the church, the rise in heresy, and particularly that of Marcion in 140 AD, and the growth of the church, it became important to have the books of the Bible recognized by central agency so that its unity could be preserved. Um, for example, Athanasius, um, who'll be coming up, <laughs> we couldn't get an actual photograph of him. Uh, one of the early fathers wrote this in AD 367. Uh, this is before the Council of 397. And his list is exactly identical to our canon. This is just the first part of it. Now, again, it is not tedious to speak of the books of the New Testament. There are four Gospels according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Afterwards, the Acts of the Apostles and Epistles, seven vis-a-vis -vis of James 1, of Peter 2, of, of John 3, after these of Jude, and on and on and on it goes. One, one scholar helpfully comments, the recognition of the books of the New Testament as scriptural was overwhelmingly a natural process not a matter of ecclesiastical regulation. The core of the New Testament was accepted so early that subsequent rulings do no more than recognize the obvious. So, is the Bible true? Well, I think as an historical document, it's hard to argue that its content isn't reliably accurate. And if Jesus' death and resurrection really happened, then it would seem to authenticate Jesus' claim to be the one that makes God known. So why doesn't everyone believe that to be the case? Well, perhaps because people don't like the God that is revealed in the Bible. Perhaps objection four is, I don't like the God of the Bible. You know, perhaps you've read things like this from the late Christopher Hitchens in God is Not Great, where he wrote, the Bible may, indeed does, contain a warrant for trafficking in humans, for ethnic cleansing, for slavery, for bride price, and for indiscriminate massacre. But we are not bound by any of it because it was put together by crude and cultured human mammals. I think the problem with these sorts of statements is that they fail to understand the context for biblical events, particularly in the Old Testament. And I acknowledge that there are some difficult things, really difficult things to read in the Bible. But the God revealed in those events is nothing like the God that Hitchens describes. A little bit of time spent understanding the culture and the wider biblical context doesn't make everything that we read nice and palatable, but it does help us to understand the nature of God behind those things. A God who cares about evil and is prepared to do something about it is a very good thing. And you know, it's worth saying that whether or not you like something isn't the best way of assessing its truth. You know, I really don't like it when people question my M6 navigational skills and my inability to steer away from the M6 toll road. I don't like it. But that doesn't mean that it's not true. 
you know, a, a God who has to think like you in order to be real is purely a God of your own making. It's an imaginary God. You know, isn't it realistic to think that if, if an infinite creator God did exist, he might not be exactly how we limited humans might want him to be? Now, however, I wonder if the biggest problem for us when it comes to accepting the Bible to be true is not that we want a God of our own making, but that we actually want to be God ourselves. And so if that's you, and if that's what you're thinking, then the Bible will never be relevant to you. Fifth objection, the Bible isn't relevant to me today. What does an outdated, old-fashioned book have to offer me today? You know, if what the Bible claims is true, then there's nothing more relevant to any of us you know, many of us kick back quite violently against the Bible, don't we? And perhaps, you know, this may or may not happen in the Q&A. But, but here's the question. Why do we care? You know, why do any of us care? You know, if we are really, just as Stephen Hawking describes us, as chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet, then what's the point in even asking the questions? You know, just get on with life and enjoy it. Who gives a beep? But we do care. And I'm so glad that you do care. We care because we want to know our place in the narrative. We want to know how we got here and why we're here. We want to know what gives our life meaning and what happens when we die. You know, we spend our lives searching for meaning, satisfaction, and significance. We live life as hope-filled creatures, always longing for a happy ending, which never quite perfectly arrives. And the Bible reveals why we are like that. The Bible reveals the big story, not a fictional one, but a story written in over 1,500 years in 66 volumes with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it centers around a man, Jesus Christ. It's a story of, of God's interaction with the world, made up of billions of individual stories, and one of which is yours. You know, it explains why we're here and who we are. It explains why the world is the way it is and what it means to be a person and where we're heading. It tells us how the author himself wrote into the story um, in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, God stepping into human history in order that we might know the God who made us and enjoy relationship with him. The Bible is a story that connects with us because it connects to the source of life itself. And I hope you can see that even if there's a slight chance that this is true, then it is the most relevant and most important thing in the whole world. It would be crazy to dismiss a claim like that without actually reading the story, wouldn't it? You know, popular images of, of ancient scribes making up things as they went along and changing texts at will are a travesty of what actually happened. The motivation of those who transmitted the texts was that successive generations would be able to find truth for themselves in the pages of Scripture. The integrity of the content of Scripture was of paramount importance for them. And we now have to make up our own minds as to whether or not the content is actually true or not. But to hide behind the idea that it's been corrupted or changed in transmission is a little bit disingenuous. So see for yourselves, you know, read it for yourselves. You know, the Christian claim isn't just that Christianity is objectively true, but also that it's existentially satisfying. You know, read this for yourself and make your mind up. Like, is the content true or not? Does it accord to reality, the reality of your life, or not? there to be tested.